This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, June 22nd, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. What is the proper status of administrative law judges? Do they serve the interests of the administration, or are they independent and insulated from the impact of their decisions? The Supreme Court has officially weighed in. Cato's Walter Olson and Trevor Burris comment on the case of Lucia v. SEC. What has been the role of administrative law judges in the federal government? Kind of depends which uh, which agency they're working for. What came out in this litigation is that the most prominent agency that has the most administrative law judges is the Social Security Administration, which has something like fourteen hundred, and they hear various disputes about Social Security checks and benefits, and make determinations uh, about who gets them and how much. And other other agencies have f- fewer, much fewer judges to resolve these disputes. They're always within the administration. Uh, This is the kind of critique that we often give as libertarians that the administration is judge, jury, and executioner. So these are what are called Article I judges. They're not uh, Article III judges appointed by the president, but they work uh, under uh, the executive branch is in the agencies, and they—if you have a dispute with an agency over something, a federal nuclear regulatory commission, things like that—you go to an administrative law judge. Uh, the DEA has administrative law judges that, that hear challenges to scheduling. Uh, it really depends on what the agency does. And this question of whether or not they are judge, jury, and executioner ties in with one of the issues at the center of the case, which is who gets to pick them. And uh, <laughs> before. Getting into the details, I would just note that from a libertarian standpoint, there is a bit of which is the frying pan and which is the fire of the two different ways that are uh, under discussion or uh, here. One of them, uh, the ways that the court found is required by the Constitution is for them to be picked by the department head, the, by whoever is in charge of the agency. The other way is for them to be picked by kind of peer civil service people, which is the way that the ALJ in the case at hand was in fact Picked. He was not picked by uh, the full Securities and Exchange Commission um, voting to approve him. He was picked by some sort of civil service peers. Now, libertarians can see around the corner to uh, the different types of problems that each can uh, result in, which is uh, the SEC commissioners themselves are often political appointees who keep in mind uh, the next election, who don't want to get the administration in trouble, and yet who may also bring political ambitions of some sort that might want them to push the envelope in some way. So you've got that danger that they might be trying to get away with over-prosecuting some regulated person for a political goal. On the other hand, turn over the selection of the ALJs to the civil service and you get a different set of incentives and not necessarily an appetizing one because the civil service, as we all know, can have its own goals, its own culture. And sometimes we want the more political appointees to be able to rein in a wrong direction that the civil service has taken. Trevor, you and I have talked about um, administrative law judges in a different context, and that is within the agency, the DEA. And it seems, at least in a couple of cases, that those judges simply existed to ratify the wishes of the agency and the administration, and the agency was free to ignore the the judgments of these administrative law judges whenever they wanted. Yeah, and that goes back to Wally's point that the independence of these judges is what 
when they were crafting the Administrative Procedure Act and there's, there was briefs submitted to the court by various administrative law judges and consortiums of administrative law judges that said that the, when the civil servants appoint ALJs, that there's more independence in the in the guiding factor that the court should consider. Many of these ALJs asked the court in an amicus brief is whether or not they will be sufficiently independent and whether or whether or not they will be relying too much on pleasing the agency. And so some people argued, and it's a little it's in the dissent too, to some extent, that the civil service factor helps create more independent administrative law judges. And again, the double-edgedness of that, let me cite an example from the Social Security area, which has the largest use of ALJs anywhere, which is it's been noted for a long time that of Social Security administrative law judges deciding on disability cases, you have some outliers. You have some outliers who approve disability much more often than other ALJs, uh, even though there isn't much evidence that their geographical area where they sit uh, is somehow injuring workers at a much greater rate. And so here is the double-edged problem. If the uh, agency issues guidelines or if it begins to discipline in some way or worse yet punish ALJs uh, who seem to be outliers and producing completely different justice, then uh, is it really a judicial process at all? On the other hand, if you don't do that, then you get uh, farther departures from one of the norms of justice, which is the equal application, whatever part of the country you live in, whichever ALJ is chosen to hear your case. We also can't forget the, the constitutional point here. I mean, Wally brings up the, the libertarian point and the constitutional point is not always the exact same, but but we at Cato, we tend to have an, an issue with these agencies and we don't want them to be rogue independent agencies that are not authorized by the constitution. And this all flows down from Congress, that the Congress is allowed to appoint some amount of agencies, but they have to give them enough uh, direction and guidance to do it. And then they have to be able to be under the control of Congress or the executive empowered by Congress. And the, it all flows from the constitution. So it needs to be done in a constitutional way. And here is in fact, the nub of the uh, case as far as the justices were concerned, which is the Constitution has the appointments clause. And the appointments clause uh, for so-called inferior officers, which is what we're talking about here, which is not major decision makers, but nonetheless people who are um, uh, who have more, more responsibility. They argued a lot about this, more responsibility than let's, let's say a mail carrier does. Um, these inferior officers are supposed to be appointed by uh, someone of significance such as a department head uh, or the uh, chief executive or uh, in some cases a court of law that's not a, a, as important an exception. But um, a typical rule would be if it's an inferior officer, then it's going to be appointed by the department head, which would mean in this case the SEC operating as a commission. And All right. So let's get, let's get to the, the actual case <laughs> if we can. Um, what is at issue – in uh, Lucia v. Securities and Exchange Commission. So Mr. Lucia was uh, some sort of – read it between the lines in the opinion. He seemed to be a kind of in investment advisor who would say things about how he could make you, you know, live on a Cayman – on the Cayman Islands by the time you're 40 if you just listen to his investment advice, which brought him under uh, the SEC's regulation of investment advisors. And so he had to go in front of an administrative law judge at the SEC and 
plead his case about whether or not what he was doing was lawful under their regulations. And the ALJ in that situation determined that it wasn't lawful and they fined him $300,000, I think it was, and they suspended his license to be an investment advisor for his whole life, I believe. Uh, he appealed that case on basically saying the ALJ who made the determination in my case was not properly appointed under the constitution um, and, it, and that's the case that he eventually won. It had been jumping around for quite a while. It went to the D.C. Circuit. It went to the D.C. Circuit en banc, meaning all the judges on the D.C. Circuit would hear it and, it, and the D.C. Circuit split evenly 5-5 on that. Uh, it's been going for a while. People have been watching the case and wondering what its implications are for the entire administrative state. Uh, and that's something that we're, we're still going to be wondering into the future. All right. So why do cases go like this go before ALJs and not through a regular court? This is a question libertarians have been asking for quite a while, but it was not the question presented by this case. <laughs> a different case may raise issues of this sort uh, at some point. I think there's a short answer to that question though. The short answer to that question is that in many instances, um, the government couldn't do as much as it does if it couldn't use ALJs uh, and maybe that's the actual problem. If it had to constitutionally appoint Article III judges for every social security matter, uh, then that would be a lot of people had to go through appointments process and nomination and all that stuff. And arguments will be offered inevitably saying we can get a core of uh, judges who are expert in our subject matter and we like that a lot better than if we had to pick from the stock of judges who uh, A, might not be expert in our subject matter, B, might get impatient at constantly processing routine types of cases. And uh, you know, a response to that is, gee, uh, a lot of us would like specialized judges for our cases because these same advantages would apply to all sorts of people who get dragged into court without one or two. Why should just the government get this benefit? So what, how does this change? Um, how these judges do their jobs and how they get selected. The majority opinion by Justice Kagan uh, was deliberately narrow. It answered some questions and not other questions. Uh, to a large extent, uh, and especially because at the SEC, they have already changed their procedure uh, to uh, respond to the major objection here. Uh, the immediate results will be kind of narrow. Uh, other agencies that have similar formats will need to consider whether their ALJ appointment methods are unconstitutional and fix them. If so, uh, it was also one of the arguments between the justices, but the majority ruled that uh, Mr. Lucia was entitled to a different ALJ than the one who had heard his case last time, that one would be too swayed by having already gone through a whole proceeding. But uh, those are the narrow cases that they agreed to decide. Just beyond that are some big questions that uh, by design, uh, Kagan's opinion does not answer, although Justice Breyer raised them in his mixed concurrent dissent. Uh, Key, uh, uh, you know, that prominent among those, most prominent is all right. We've looked at the appointment side by which they get their jobs. How can they lose their jobs? And uh, Justice Breyer pointed out, and it was hanging in the atmosphere. Everyone knew that this was very serious stuff. That under 
Supreme Court precedents, uh, in particular uh, one a few years ago over the relatively new federal agency called the Public Companies Accounting Oversight Board or Peekaboo. Uh, yes, we all laugh when that, that is said. Uh, th there are, uh, are constitutional implications to um, making judges uh, at, at the or making agency officers too insulated from removal uh, that in that case they said you couldn't have double insulation that the peekaboo's own board can't be removed and they also are insulated from control by, by peekaboo's uh, board. Now the implication of that for the ALJs at places like the SEC is uh, you know, if the appointments clause applies because they are inferior officers, then maybe they have to be more easily removable. Maybe they don't get uh, civil service protections and that's a biggie. That one um, directly affects uh, the first the well-being as employees of these particular officers, uh, but it also gets into uh, some of the political incentives, some of the ways in which agencies could change through political pressure in ways that are probably more important than the actual selection of the officers. Yeah, you might expect if uh, a new administration is uh, uh, brought in, into office and these are officers of the United States that the the president or uh, agency heads could simply fire them and know it, being aware of that, they might uh, make some significant alterations to how they rule all of a sudden. And there are multiple opinions on that going back to the way we kind of started this that there you can see both sides that it's important to have political control and it's not important and it's important to have independence and there's somewhere in the middle is where we have these constitutional discussions and, and I know that people when Ever the administration changes over, people complain about the existence of of all the civil servants who are there all the time, no matter which administration they're in, and and this is this debate has been going on for for quite a while. And yes, Kagan's opinion leaves much to be decided. There will be much litigation. There are a lot of questions that we don't know. We don't know about the question of retroactivity. What happened if you had a decision made by a uh, ALJ who had been now determined to be an inferior officer of the United States and so needs to be appointed properly. Uh, we don't know the specific test because Kagan just took an existing case and just said this is ex basically the exact same as that case and it said that you know if you wield significant authority uh, it was one of the, the tests and so every ALJ and all the different agencies they'll be looking at are our agent are our ALJs like this? Do they look like the SEC ALJs, or or are they appointed properly? And there'll be a lot of people suing over it. Walter Olson is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Trevor Burris is a research fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.